Praise God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, I have to warn you in advance, I'm going to meddle a little bit, okay? So please get your toes out of the aisle. I may step on them. Not intentionally, not with malice. But sometimes we develop ways of thinking that aren't scriptural, but we think they're scriptural. So, I'm going to help you see it from the scripture's vantage point, all right? But I can already tell some of you are going to kind of go, what? So we have to decide, is truth going to be the final arbiter or is tradition going to be the final arbiter? All right? All right. That's the best I can do to try to prepare you. Here it is. Now, in Haran, the Lord said to Abram, go for yourself and for your own advantage away from your country, away from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you with abundant increase of favor and make your name famous and distinguished. And you will be a blessing, dispensing good to others. And I will bless those who bless you, who confer prosperity or happiness on you, and curse him who curses or uses insolent language toward you. In you will all the families and kindred of the earth be blessed, and by you they will bless I want to speak from this subject, departure. First step of greatness is departure. If you're going to arrive to the destiny God has for you, you've got to be willing to leave the familiar. Well, be careful when you say amen, okay? Be careful when you say amen. Because that for him was his family, his country that identified him to that time. And understand, that's, that's different than for us to leave family and kindred. He lives in a tribal culture. So the larger your tribe is, the greater your defense against other tribes. The larger your tribe is, the greater herds you can manage and the more you can hunt and gather. They're not really an agriculture. They're a nomadic culture. Okay? So for him to leave his tribe... That was to make himself vulnerable to larger tribes. Okay? And he had to decide, do I want to be identified with God or do I want to be identified with my family of origin? Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, but you got to leave where you are. So, Father, I pray tonight you would teach us the power of departure. That if we want to be great, that if we want to be used in your kingdom, if we want the blessing of God to be upon our life, we cannot be satisfied with what we've already had. Even if that means departure from country and kindred. Father, help us be willing. You are worth that kind of commitment. And we ask that the body of Christ be edified through this and strengthened in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you as you're seated. Hallelujah. So I had looked back over this and it just jumped off the page at me. And you really can't start following God till you 
turn your back on some stuff you learned from your family. How many of you ever been witnessing to someone and you're doing real good and you're making progress and they fall back and say, but grandma didn't see it that way. Anybody ever have that happen? That's what he's talking about. What? Not, not questioning her walk with God, not questioning hers, but the word is in front of you and it makes a demand of you, irrespective of her. Right? You, you find this a lot, that, that, that we'll, we'll step back and we'll say, wait a minute, I'm going to find comfort in where I come from and what they believed. I don't know if I believe it. I don't even know if I live it, but anybody ever had that experience? See, the whole Abrahamic narrative is premised on a seeming contradiction. To say in safety is to remain barren for him. Look, they've given you a good life. You should honor your father and mother. You should honor your family and your tribe and kindred. But they can't deal with your barrenness. Only I can. And if you stay here, you can have comfort and you can have safety and you can have a large tribe and you can have wealth, but you can't have a son and eternal life. See, to leave is to risk, but also to leave is to have hope of something greater than I have already. An important aspect of the promise, however, that is Abram was to trust God to follow through. Abram's part of the bargain was to simply go blindly where God would lead into a land he knew not where he would go, right? He had to leave what was comfort. He had to leave the people who had brought him to this place. But if he's going to go to the next level in God, he has to be willing to depart from them. See, Genesis breaks down God's message to Abraham in two primary elements. Instructions and, imp- and promises. The promises give the purpose for the instructions and depend on Abram's disobedience dis-o- to the instructions. If Abram obeys, the promises will counteract the crisis of barrenness. But if he stays where he is, he has no hope of life beyond himself. He has comfort, he has family, he has something that I'm sure he enjoys, but you will never have life beyond yourself. It will end with you. And I'm here to tell you, when it comes to your spiritual walk with God, your family can bring some things to you, but they can't give you eternal life. They can't give you eternal life. They can't heal what's broken in your soul. Amen? See, the command to go forth placed Abraham before a difficult choice. He would either belong to his country and his culture and his family and remain comfortably inconsequential, or he would risk everything that he knew and depart and possibly come, become great. There, there's nothing but the bold promise of God. That's all he's got. So you're telling me, and listen, I don't see that he went and consult Sarah about this. No, no, no. He had to just say, am I going to obey God or am I going to defer to country and kindred and family and ethnicity? Careful here, watch out. The promises give purpose to the instructions. But if, if he would depart and become great to be a blessing to all families of the earth, if he is to be a blessing, he cannot stay. 
If you are going to start with God, you cannot stay what you have become before you met him. That may be great. There may be blessings there. It may be a happy family. It may be a happy culture and all of those things. But if you're going to move in with God, he has to become your primary identification. It cannot be what everybody else made you or what they did for you. If you're going to be great, if you're going to have eternal consequence, your primary identifier has to be him first and everything else a far second. Oh, we're going to find out. You're saying yes now, but we're going, we're going to do a little test in a minute. We're going to do a little test. I'm sorry, I have to test it, all right? If he is to be a blessing, he cannot stay. He must depart, cutting the ties that so profoundly defined him up to that point. He has been defined by tribe and culture and family and father and grandfather. But now he's going to be defined by his connection with an eternal father. And he has to decide, is he valuable enough to leave all that behind? Is just the bare promise of God, the possibility of an heir, and having blessing to the world enough to leave that? A lot of people would say no. But Abraham steps out to a land where he did not where he was going. Abraham chooses to leave. The courage to break his cultural and familial ties and abandon the gods of his ancestors. Out of allegiance to God, the God of all families and all cultures, that's the original Abrahamic revolution. That's where all of us start, right? You probably all had that moment where maybe you were raised in a a different background Christian-wise or a different denomination and you remember the first time you went to an apostolic service, right? And you had a great time and maybe you were under conviction and maybe God moved on you and you saw things. But the difficult thing was to go back to your family of origin who saw things another way and explain to them what God had done to you. And you had to decide, was I going to follow God I'm going to follow my family of origin and my tradition. Oh, nobody ever had that conversation? Huh? Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. You know, like, I'll never forget that my pastor, his, his father, you know, back then the church was on the other side of the tracks. And when he went over there and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and came home and told his father, and I don't remember what his Christian affiliation was before, before that, but his, his father beat him, beat him for going over there. They used to come by and, you know, they didn't have, if the windows were, were working, they were up because they didn't have AC. Might have had a swamp cooler. I don't, you, some of you don't even know what that is. That's that thing you put water over on the outside, you know what I mean? And the air's a little bit cooler than normal. Yeah. And so when they had the windows up, people would come by and throw rotten tomatoes and heads of lettuce and cabbage in on them. And you think you got it tough serving God. But a lot of people had to break with what identified them to follow God. And it's no different today. No different today. The courage to break his cultural and familial ties and show his ultimate allegiance to God. I will follow you. I will turn my back on what I know, what's familiar, what love I've known to have a greater love. Notice the parallels and the reversals with the story of Babel in chapter 11. 
For example, what does God say to Abraham? If you follow me, I'll make your name great. I'll do the work. At Babel, what did they say? We're going to make a tower that reaches to heaven and make for us a great name. Immediately on the heels of man trying to reach God, God comes to a man who doesn't even know him and says, look, if you'll follow me, you won't have to work at it. I'll make your name great. I'll promote you. If you'll trust me and if you'll believe me more than what you already have. The narrative of Abraham's call underlines that stepping out of the enmeshment in the network of our inherited cultural relationship is an example of faith. All of us have to decide, am I going to belong to the family of God primarily or am I going to belong to my family of origin primarily? Well, I ain't even got into the words yet. But people get this messed up. I'm going to show you how Jesus deals with this. Faith is stepping away from what we know and what has identified us. Right? I am Christ's son before I am. My dad is dead, of course, but his name was Cheryl Shelton. But I have to identify. And if your father is living, you are Christ's son before you, whoever else is son. Because your father didn't die to give you eternal life. And so don't get it twisted here. I'm not saying not honor your parents. I'm not saying not listen to your parents. I'm saying when those two clash, you always side with Jesus. I thought I'd get some odd looks. (laughs) See, Christians can never be first Asians, Americans, Democrats, Republicans, Russians, right? And then Christians. I can never be white first and then Christian. I'm Christian first. My first allegiance, my first loyalty to Christ and his body. Even before my own family. Because I'm united with you in a way that I'm not united with my own blood. I'm united in the same spirit. Bought by the same blood. Amen. Now now understand this. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, those who are in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. My primary identity is not the distinctive markers of my culture or my sexuality. It is that I am one in Christ with the rest of the body. All right. Let's see. See, the call of God entails the rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances as the call to Jesus' first disciples illustrate. Now watch this. This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. See if they throw that up there for you. And passing along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Peter and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net to and fro in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come after me and be my disciples and I will make you become fishers of men. And they at once left their nets, yielding up all, claimed to them, followed him. 
joining him as disciples and siding with his party. He went on a little further and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately, he called out to them, abandoning all mutual claims. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went off after him. He didn't go home and talk it over with wife. He didn't go home and talk it over to the rest of the family. This is a one-time deal. They left their nets, which was their economy and their occupation, and they left their father. See, when you get the call, you've got to decide, where is my primary identity? Is it from the one who's calling me or the one who's cared for me up till now? I have to make that decision or I'm always going to have trouble in the kingdom when those two things clash. They're going to clash. Now, when they don't clash, hear me out, okay? When the kingdom and my family doesn't clash, my family's the priority, period. You got that? That's easy, all right? I never miss one of their performances or games or anything because, you know, I'm up here doing accounting or something. That can wait. But if there was a life or death situation or emergency or a heaven or hell situation, they would understand if I stepped away. Right? But I don't miss it over just normal junk, right? If it's counseling, I schedule the counseling around that and put them first. But when they clash, when they don't clash, it's my wife and my kids first. But when they clash, who are you going to choose? See, a lot of us got it twisted, and some of this is not biblical. It's a response to ministers who sacrifice their family for ministry. And I'm not talking about life or death ministry. I'm not talking about heaven or hell ministry. I'm just talking about day-to-day ministry. And so we backed off and said, we got to reorganize this. But what happens when they collide? Who is your allegiance to? I want you to sit on that for a minute. Because we haven't thought about this in a while. But when they were called, they left their nets. That's everything. That's their economy. That's their income. That's their livelihood. They left their families. They left their father and they left. That is a response of faith. That what I've been called to is greater than what I have. That's a value judgment. And if you can't see that, that's why Jesus would look at people who said, I would like to be your disciple. And he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. What was he saying? If you have ideas about what the kingdom is and it is less than that for you, you won't follow long. You have to decide, I want to follow you even if it doesn't lead to wealth. Even if it doesn't lead to houses. That you are that important. You with me? The nets are the economy and the father is their community and it must be left behind. It must be put in its proper place. It doesn't mean we deny our relationships with our family. It just means when they clash with the will of God, what are we going to do? Are they going to be the final arbiter of the will of God because they disagree? Are you going to follow God? Think about it this way. Our ultimate allegiance, our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his multi-ethnic body. Not to a particular country, culture, or family. I want you to get that. 
That's your first primary identity. Why? Because no one else in that lineage has given their life to save you. No innocent person has died. So they don't, so blood is not thicker than the spirit. I'll tell you most, listen to me very carefully. Most church problems is because we choose blood over the spiritual bond that we have for one another. I ain't got to the scripture yet because you're still wondering how you're going to prove this up. Just let me go a little bit further. It has to be this way. Jesus said this. It was that way with the disciples. They had to decide what's more important. What's going on in this command with Abraham when he first meets God had appeared to him before. But at Haran when he gets this command. What's going on with this command to leave family? The real issue is, he says, are you going to be identified as a follower of Christ? Are you going to be identified as a member of that family and that culture and that tribe? Where is your identity going to come from? What I can do for you, the supernatural and the miraculous, or your daily needs that are met here? And understand, we will always trade freedom and greatness for subsistence. You don't think that's true? Look at Israel. How many times did they say, we remember the leeks and the garlics. We remember the flesh pots. We remember, you didn't remember the whip, honey? No, they didn't. Because subsistence is easier than freedom. Freedom and greatness takes responsibility. It takes trusting God when there is no water and the waters are bitter. Amen. It takes believing God will come through even when there's no help from family. Friend, you got to decide. Is he right? Or is everybody that wants me to be safe right? The question is, the question is, will it be your past? Or will it be your present and your future? Which will identify you? Here's what he's saying. Here's what the Lord Yahweh is saying to Abraham. Your earthly father can give you physical life. But he can't give you an heir and he can't give you eternal life. Which is going to have priority. Is it going to be the temporal things that they can provide? Or is it the eternal significance I provide? He said your, your family provided for you and raised you. And they're well deserving of honor. But they have not died to save you. And they can't take you where I want to take you. Think about this. Who wins when family culture collide with Christ and his kingdom? Who wins? Who wins? It should be easy, but it's not easy for us. Luke 14 and 26. Jesus, here again, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother in the sense of indifference to or relative disregard to them in comparison with his attitude toward God... Likewise, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You can't even get into the kingdom until you decide that my primary identity is Christ. That I love him more than any of those things. And if his kingdom and his will for me and, and, and his call for me collide with that, I have to choose him. That is not unloving to my family. That is putting the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his proper place. 
You, you read that whole chapter throughout the parable that precedes it and the direct saying. He pressed home to his followers that no home love, no earthly affection must ever come into competition with the love of God. Anybody remember that, that Ten Commandments? Where is it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is not a priority thing. That is in my face. In other words, there can't be anything close to me. That isn't God is first and then family's here. It is, period, anything that can give you security or sustenance or eternity that you think can vest you with that is a God that you've placed in my presence, in my face. There is no room for rivals, not even in our family of origin. I love my family. I love my girls. But you know what we've got going on in Christianity right now? We think we can have a relationship with God, and it's common in modern Christianity. I, I can have a relationship with God without a church. No, you can't. The church is the mother. Yes, you have a father, but you have to have a mother too. And we think what you do to the body is what you do to Christ. Right? I can't go over here and hit Tam in the arm and say, well, that's not Tam, that's just her arm. <laughs> no, that's her. You come over here and you start talking about some parts of the body, you're doing that to Christ. You don't believe that, do you? Well, I'm going to give you scripture because I know people need it. And I believe in scripture. When Paul knocks, when, when the Lord knocks Saul of Tarsus off his donkey in a blinding light, out thou, Lord. He said, I am Jesus Christ whom thou persecutest. He didn't say you're persecuting my church or my body. He said, you're persecuting me. He said, I don't make any distinction between the two. You understand, Jesus doesn't make any distinction. What you do to the body, you do to Jesus. What you do to the body, you do to the head. You talk down the body, you talk down the head. Yeah, try that on your wife sometime. And see if she don't take it personal. Say, baby, you have a wonderful, beautiful face. But your body needs some work. <laughs> Those two are connected, son. Yes. You didn't get over with that. I know people say, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with his church. You have a problem with Jesus. Because he bought it with his blood. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Yes, it's got humans in it. It's got failures in it. It's got problems. But it's his. If you want to fix it, go to him. You can't, you can't isolate from the body without isolating from Jesus. We think we can. You can't do it. You were born into a body that's connected to the head. Tell Jesus, yeah, it's just, it's just some of your people I can't stand. You're talking about the people I died for, the people I bled for? Let me work on them. Let me work on them. Let the Holy Ghost go to work on them. Pray for them. I'll, I'll help them. I'll sanctify them. I'll change them. I'll convict them. Right? Help me. Y'all can get me preaching in here. We, we, we like to compartmentalize. That's Americanism coming through our scripture. That's what that is. That's all that is. Jesus said, I've got to be the first. And anything else can't even come close. Next to me, it has to look like hatred. It's not real hatred, but it has to look like it. 
So what, what happens, you know, for me as a pastor if, if one of my kids does something that's outside the will of God? Certainly I love my kid, but I refer him to the will of God because I'm more dedicated to the will of God than I am my kid. Doesn't mean I don't love them. My love is unconditional. It's not based on them, them living the life that I want them to live. It's based on the fact that I give them the love that Christ gave me. But I do tell them, hey, I'm disappointed. That's not the will of God for you. You're not loving people when you side with them over the will of God. I know they're your babies. I know you love them. But every once in a while, in love, you got to set them down and say, that is not the will of God for you. And I love you enough to tell you that. And I would rather you be angry at me over the truth than to love me over petting you. No? If home and his cause ever come into collision, home and all belonging to it must gently be put aside and everything must be sacrificed for the kingdom. That's the word of God. Matthew 8, 22, another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord... I'll follow you, but let me first go bury and care for my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. See, we think that's harsh. But he said, listen, if that's a priority for you now, anytime the kingdom and that collides, you're going to choose family. Anytime my kingdom, my body collide with your family, you're going to choose family. That's wrong. That's wrong. Do you understand that? You say, well, you know, no. I'm telling you from Scripture. He said, you can't even get into the kingdom. He said, don't even try it. If that's your priority, there's going to be another time when I want to send you somewhere and something's going on over here and I can't send you because you have other priorities. Other things you're dedicated more to than me. Should Abraham have stayed within the field of his known relations? Notice first that Abraham's departure does not stand for a denial of his relationships. Even Lot went with him. Some of them went with him. But they had to leave where they were to see the blessing of God and the power of God. It is putting them secondary to the call of God. That's all it's doing, putting them in their proper place. Abraham is most radically bound to God. He is bound to God in a place that I will turn my back on everything else. Right? There can't be competition there. And it's tough sometimes. I know it's difficult. We have to decide. And we have to tell the people we love. I had to do this with my friends when I got into church. I said, look, you're going to continue to drink. You're going to continue to drug. It doesn't bother me. But if you try to put it on me, I can't hang out with you. Because then you're asking me to choose between Christ and the will of God and you, and I can't do that. But as long as you can do it and not put it on me, then we can hang out. I just had to tell them, I love you and I want to hang out. I want to continue a relationship. But if you're going to tempt me with where I was, you're not my real friend. We got a hard time with that sometimes. We have to say that to family. We have to say that to friends. And they don't understand it, you know. You put the church ahead of me. I'm connected to the body of Christ in a deeper way that I'll never be connected to anybody in my family. Do you understand that? It took somebody's death to unite us. In marked contrast to the builders of the Tower of Babel who wanted to make for themselves a great name, Abraham will be made great by God when he obeys, when he follows. For us to have a new and primary identity in Christ 
And as a part of the body, there must be a departure of the source of previous identity. There has to be a departure from that source. That doesn't mean you don't love them. That doesn't mean you don't have relationship with them. But when they collide, who are you going to choose? We've had a problem with this. Right? So we're like, well, that's my family and that, that's my blood, you know. And I'll fight for them even against God and his church. Careful. Right? See, what happens when the blood, our blood kin and the body clash? Who do we choose? I'm not talking about when they're not clashing. I choose my kin. I choose my kids. I put them first above the church over the day-to-day, right? But if you call me and you're in an ambulance going to the hospital, my family will understand in that moment that i got to get to you. Because that's life or death, heaven or hell, possibly. You understand that? Not for everything, not for every event. But in those settings, i got to step aside and they have to understand that. This is life or death. This is the family of God. See, we must remember that what we do to the body, we do to Christ. Right? What do he say when he has the goats and the sheep and he divides them, right? And they said, when did we see you naked and hungry and in prison? He said, in as much as you did it not unto the least of these, you did it not to me. He steps in and takes that personally. Not, now, if he feels that way about unbelievers, how does he feel about the body that he's purchased with his blood and endued with his spirit? He took it personally. He identifies with those people. And we always go, well, give me another scripture. Okay, one more. Mark 3, 32 through 35. It said that his family was outside. If you look at verse 31, which I probably don't have. His family was outside. They were calling for Jesus. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around to those who sat in the circle, his disciples, those who followed him, those that did the will of God. He said, behold, behold, see here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, my brother and sister and mother are they. He said, my attachment to them is greater than that to Mary and my brothers. He said that. If he modeled that, why can't that be the same for us? That our connection to one another is greater than anything else that comes into our life. The twelve had responded to his call to accompany him. And now they were spiritual ties between Jesus and the 12 that were closer than the blood ties that he knew. That's what we're trying to do is to get us to identify first with Christ and his body. Secondarily to family. Right? Secondarily to those blood ties. That's what happened with the early church that made it so difficult because genealogy and blood was so important to Jewish Christians. And Paul said, it doesn't matter about your genealogy. It matters about your faith. He said, the way in is not your genealogy. The way in is faith in Christ. And that works for Jew and that works for Gentile. That works for both. 
No longer does it matter that you're a son of Abraham by the flesh. Are you a son of Abraham by the spirit? Have you been born again of the water and of the spirit? That's what makes us family. That's why they had so much problem. Gentile identity was so important to them. That's why he had to come along and he said, there's not Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. It's not that the distinction says any advantage in the distinction ceases. Any disadvantage in the distinction ceases beneath the cross. Beneath the cross. We all come to Christ as sinners. That's what we have in common. Not where we come from. Not our nation of origin. Not our skin color. What we come together with is we were all sinners. We were all lost. And the same Jewish God robed himself in flesh and died for us and shed his blood. And we're united by something stronger than our genealogy and heritage. We have to live that out to one another. You need to realize the next time you want to say something negative about something, remember you're saying it about Christ. He makes no distinction between himself and the body. Be careful. Be careful. We've, I know it's natural for us to fear our tenderest affection to my children, to my wife. We naturally expect the warmest affection to abide in family, in the closest family. But the love that is found amongst earthly relatives is but a faint image of that which Christ feels towards his followers. And we should feel toward him. And the rest of his body. When our love or obedience to earthly parents stands in competition with our obedience to Christ. Then we must resemble Aaron and the tribe of Levi. You didn't think I was finished, did you? This is the tough one. Because this is it being lived out. It's one thing to know it in your head. But this is it lived out. Moses delayed on the mountain in Exodus chapter 32. And when he delayed, they made a golden calf, began to worship the golden calf. And they began to, the Bible says in the King James, they rose up to play, which is a nice Elizabethan idiom for they had an orgy. (laughs) But that, that King James, they didn't want to say that. So they said they rose up to play. Yes, they did. And when Moses comes down from the mount, his presence shakes some of them out of their worship, idolatry, and immorality. But there are some, the Bible says, that are just taken away with it. Even his presence in the camp doesn't shake them. They go on with what they're doing. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the Levites, the priestly tribe, gathered together to him. Now understand, there's some of their family. There's some of their friends involved. He said, whose side are you on? Watch this. Now watch it very carefully. I want you to get a hold of this. Let them come to me. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And slay every man his brother. And every man his companion. And every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Wow. 
And the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and 9, where it's talking about Aaron and the tribe of Levi, he said, give them the Aram and the Thurum. And he reminded them what they did on this day. He said, Aaron, who said to his father and mother, I do not regard them. Nor did he acknowledge his brothers or openly recognize his own children. For the priests observed your word and kept your covenant. Irrespective of family or blood bond, they kept the word of the Lord. And there's going to come a time in your life you're going to have to decide, do I keep the word of God or do I obey the other people in my life? And when they collide, you have to have settled it that it's going to be Jesus I can show you this at work right now, but I don't want to. It's all over social media. But I can tell you right now, there's a situation that's making headlines everywhere because there's a situation where we have a family relationship, father and son. And because I couldn't step away from that relationship and say, I got to do what's right before God. Because they couldn't do that and separate from that. Now, it's not just the son who's in trouble, but the father as well. It's all over social media. Because we got linked in, we said, I want to help and I want to save. But if they're wrong and if they've committed a crime, we as ministers have to care for the less fortunate. I'm just here to tell you as a pastor, I can't counsel you over person-to-person crime. <laughs> Don't come to me because I'm either going to tell you to turn yourself in or I'm going to call in. You can't do it because we look like we're caring for the perpetrator and not caring for the victim. We have to care for the victim. We have to have, when it comes to this collision, we have to have no respect unto family in comparison to God and duty. The meaning is he followed God and his command fully and executed the judgment that Moses called for without any respect to persons. Aaron and Levi burned with holy zeal and performed impartial execution of the worshipers of the golden calf, not exempting even the nearest relatives that were, that were involved in the wickedness. I read this today, and I want to read it to you, and I think this is right. This is not mine, so don't give it to me. This is from an author named Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf uh, is a Croat, and he lived through the 1990 Serbian-Muslim-Croatian war, and he saw all kinds of blood and vengeance and just, just genocide. And he says this, and I think it's right. All the churches of Jesus Christ scattered in diverse cultures, have been redeemed for God by the blood of the Lamb to form one multicultural community of faith. The blood that binds them as brothers and sisters is more precious than the blood or the language or the custom or the political allegiances or economic interests that may separate them. Watch this. He's not finished. He said, we as a church should reject false doctrine as though a church should place allegiance to culture it inhabits and the nation to which it belongs above the commitment to brothers and sisters from our other cultures and nations, servants of one Jesus Christ, the common Lord, and members of God's new community and new family. This is what happened. And I know it's fixed to come around the corner in the fall. We're going to be in the political thing. And we're looking for some 
God to rise up and, and, and keep, keep America godly and righteous. It's not going to happen top down. You know how it happens? Bottom up. You change one person's heart and they can change their spouse and then they can change their family and it's a grassroots thing. You keep waiting for somebody to be elected who's going to take us back to the old days. It's not happening. And if it does happen, he might be the Antichrist. We keep putting our faith in political figures. Change it top down. Stop all of this, you know, immorality and craziness that we see. You stop it one person at a time. One gospel at a time. One Bible study at a time. You stop it. Don't look. Don't give our responsibility of saving the world to a political party. Neither one of those parties has shed any blood for me. But Jesus Christ went to Calvary for me. And so my identity is in him. It is not in my political party. My faith is not in their ability to change things. My faith is in him. I don't get it twisted. I had to get on to some people last year or the last time we had the political thing. They're getting so animated on Facebook. I was like, you don't even worship like that in church. You don't get it that excited about Jesus and all he's done for you. You're excited about the promises and the possibility of a candidate who, who can't do any of the things he says without the legislature. Drive me nuts, man. We got it twisted. Be a good citizen. Vote. Do, do your conscience, all right? If you don't vote, don't come crying to me if it's not going well. But we, we have to get a hold of what the scripture says. Come here, Ben. Come here, Ben, my friend. I'm going to use you. If Gina was here, she'd be mad because I'd bring her up. She don't like coming up. So I'm going to use you. You're not happy about it either? Sorry. You're more forgiving than she is. So... This is my brother, my brother in Christ. And my connection with him is greater than my own blood connection to my family. Doesn't mean I don't have a relationship. Doesn't mean I don't love him. But when those two collide and he's in a life or death situation or he's lost his wife and he's there at the hospital after she's expired and COVID is everywhere. That means even though my family would like me to stay safe, I go into that COVID room and we pray over that woman and we pray over this man. You understand that? Because he needs me in that moment. He needs me in that moment. You say, well, that's your job. That's what you get paid to do. I think that should be everybody's attitude. Because if my health is more important to me than him in his time of need, I got it twisted. He lost his wife. He lost the person who brought him out of mental illness and loved him in spite of it. His whole world is turned upside down. The least I can do is put on a mask and a face mask and walk in and say, brother, you're not by yourself. You're my brother and I'm here for you. I love you, man. And when we start to live that out, people will take notice. I've always told y'all that the fruit of the Spirit is not about you. The fruit of the Spirit is an advertisement for the body of Christ. 
That's what it is. Who wouldn't want to? Those are relational qualities. Love, joy, peace, long-term, kindness. Who wouldn't want to be around that group of people? Who wouldn't want to hang out with them? Who wouldn't want to worship with them? It's relational. It's not about us going, I got fruit. Do you know what's in the fruit? The seed. The seed is the reproductive part of the seed. You bear fruit so you can reproduce yourself. Not so that you can go, hey, I'm saved. It's like if you're hungry, come to me. I got some fruit. If you're lonely, I got some kindness. Amen. If you're depressed, I got some joy I can share. It's an advertisement. It's relational righteousness. And we got to get back to that. We, we Americans, we read everything in the text and the scripture and we think it's being spoken to us individually. Everything he says is you all in the epistles. He says to the church in Rome. To the church in Thessalonica. To the church. There is not one command to an individual. It is to that body of believers that are gathered there. They were to read it together. They were to carry it out together. But we as Americans read it and go, oh, as long as I'm doing it, it doesn't matter if anybody else is. The Bible says, bring up that which is behind. Encourage one another to good works. Right? We don't go, it's just me and as long as I'm saved and my four, I'm good. No, we say, if there's somebody in my immediate, that's my brother or sister that's struggling, I got to get back there and bring them with me. Amen. I got to pray over them. I got to pray till they pray through. They're important to me. I'm going to quit with this. I went too long. I'm fired up tonight. So. I said this on social media a few years ago and I, and I finished a paper the other day for college and I put it in the paper. But I remember in May of 2020 when I watched the video of the George Floyd arrest and I saw the guy kneel on his neck for eight minutes. And inside, I'm saying this almost out loud to the people who are videoing. I'm saying, somebody step in. Somebody get over there close to them. Somebody do something, you know what I mean? Besides record, right? But then the spirit said to me, he said, Brent, if you're standing there, are you going to risk arrest, pepper spray, or a baton? And when I couldn't answer immediately, I understand. We all want justice, but we don't want to risk our own comfort to give it to somebody else. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Were you George Floyd and someone was on your neck, whether their authority or not, would you want somebody to intervene? Then you need to be the person to intervene. See, that's our problem. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to risk getting beat. Until their problems are your problems. We're not living up to the concept of the body of Christ. When I have a cut on my hand, my whole body goes to work to stop the bleeding and stop the infection and send white blood cells to that so that it doesn't get any further. And no matter who we are in the body, whether we're the eyes or the ears or the hand or the foot, the whole body should be in action when one of us is hurting and one of us is wounding and one of us are struggling and one of us feels like giving up. It shouldn't be just somebody who sits next to us. It ought to be the whole body that says, that's my hand. If that hand is wounded, then we can't operate like we need to. We can't reach many people until they're whole. 
And when we stand up and start living that out, there won't be enough seats to house the people who will walk in this building. Stand with me all over the building. There won't be enough seats. There won't be enough seats. Lupita, I know I've been back there tonight. She was crying earlier. I went over and prayed with her. And I know you came on to the church in spite of maybe a little resistance in your family structure. You know what you showed the Lord? When they collide, when they don't collide, it's my husband, it's my family. But when they start to collide and when they want to be my Lord and they want to be my Savior, <laughs> they're not that. And so I gotta, I gotta step aside and put him first. I gotta put him first. Listen, they're not gonna understand it. They're not gonna applaud it. They may even resent it. They're like, you, you're not true to your family. Oh, yes, I am. I got a new family. I got a new family. Father, I just pray right now that the Holy Ghost would come over all of us. The spirit of love and of self-donation and self-sacrifice. God, help me, Lord Jesus. Help me, God, to know, to reach out. God, to lay my life down. Be a good shepherd, Lord, for the flock. God, if they're in that life or death situation, if they're in that heaven or hell situation, suicidal, let us all be there, God. Let it not be. Let it not be an imposition. Let us step away momentarily from the other priorities in our life and step in. Be the voice of healing. Be the voice of encouragement. Be the prayer of faith, oh God. Come on, Holy Ghost. Come on, Holy Ghost. Move in us, Lord Jesus. I know we've been taught and our culture has told us that our tribe and our culture and our identity is everything, Lord God. But I got some brothers and sisters that have been washed in the blood. Hallelujah. I got some brothers and sisters that have the same spirit as I do that are pulling in the same direction, God. Help me invest, God, in the eternal parts of the kingdom, Jesus. Let me pray for my family. Let me continue to love my family. But when they collide, Lord Jesus, let me leave and depart from what's familiar and what's safe. Let me reach to the lost, to the hurting, of the wounded, of the struggling. I don't want to break the moment here, but I'll just tell you the way I decided years ago set my whole staff down and there was a church that was having some difficulties and stress infighting looked like it was close to possibly some type of split or something I look at the staff and I said I'm going to tell you right now if that happens here I'm leaving I'm 
I'm going to let y'all have it, fight it out. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. And what joins us, what joins us is far greater than the little distinctions in our doctrine, and the little lines we place. What joins us together is far greater and more powerful cost of life than we be uniform in every little part of our doctrine and understanding and lifestyle. Father, there are hurting and wounded people all over this world. Let me say this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had someone reach out to me they were sending me some stuff about how the prison system and the American military is trying to finance uh, sex reassignment surgery and stuff like that and, and it greatly troubled this person and rightfully so I understand but I had to I'm sorry I'm the glass half full guy alright I'm not going to go oh me what are we going to do I said listen they're pushing them inadvertently into the arms of the church. He said, how so? I said, well, what happens when you're uncomfortable with your body? Maybe you're depressed or anxious and you go through the whole process that they say is a remedy. And then after you've been through their remedy and you still have the anxiety and you still have the depression and you still don't vote, well, now you're looking for another solution. I'm going to be here waving that solution. I'm going to be here saying, I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care what they've told you. But I can point you to a God who will love you, forgive you, and wash you. See, we think it's a disadvantage. I'm looking going, that's all right. I'll be at the hospital if they go back and I'll say, hey, I'm here to love you. I'm here to help you. I can point you to a Jesus who will love you just like you are.